Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. My guest today is David Wessel, who has been a part of this podcast, providing his monthly Wessel's Economic Update. And I'm delighted now to have his insight and expertise for the entire episode. David is director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy and a senior fellow in economic studies here at Brookings. He joined Brookings just over a year ago. And prior to that, he had spent over 30 years on the staff of the Wall Street Journal, where he was most recently the economics editor and writer of the weekly Capital Column. He is still a contributing correspondent to the Wall Street Journal, appears frequently on NPR's Morning Edition, and tweets often at, at David M. Wessel. Thank you, David, for your contributions to the podcast and for being on the show today. Great. Good to be with you, Fred. Um, and what made you want to make the jump from journalism where you spent over three decades to the think tank world? It was kind of an accident. Uh I had been at the Journal for 30 years. You get a little catalog when you've been there 30 years. You get to pick some some knives or jewelry or something. So I was very aware that I'd been there a long time. And I was turning 60. And I thought, if I was ever going to do anything different, now was the time. And then this opportunity at Brookings literally fell in my lap when Glenn Hutchins, who gave the money for the Hutchins Center, asked me for advice on who should run it. And I volunteered. Okay. Well, when you were before your 30 year career at the Wall Street Journal, did you uh, set out to be a journalist? I went to work for a newspaper about a week after graduating from college. I thought I might go to law school. I took the law boards, but I liked it so much that I basically never did anything else until I I came to Brookings. So let's uh, go back to Glenn Hutchins. So he uh, helped found the center that you're the director of. Why a center on fiscal and monetary policy and why at Brookings? Uh, Glenn Hutchins, of course, one of the trustees of Brookings. So I think he had a commitment to the institution. I think that fiscal policy, which is the budget, has long been a focus of economic studies at Brookings, but it's been very diffuse. There are people in economic studies, there's people in the governance unit, there's people in the global economic unit, there's people in Metro. So I think there was a sense that it would be good to have somebody who might be able to draw on all the resources. On monetary policy, there really wasn't very much at Brookings. And I think that monetary policy has been so important in the last few years, not only here with the Federal Reserve, but in Europe with the European Central Bank, in Japan with the Bank of Japan, that it seemed like it was uh, an unexploited opportunity for an institution like this, which has so many thoughtful people uh, to focus on something which has become incredibly important to the economy and is so poorly understood by the public and indeed even by some members of Congress. Well, I think that's a great segue to what we're going to talk about for the rest of the podcast, which is monetary policy, specifically a focus on the Federal Reserve. And even more especially, there's this notion now uh, of audit the Fed, of increased uh, oversight of the Federal Reserve. Can you talk a little bit about audit the Fed, but just more generally, what does oversight of this institution look like? The Federal Reserve is an unusual institution in our democracy. It was created by Congress in 1913. It is designed to fulfill a certain mandate that Congress gives them. Uh, the current law says price stability and maximum sustainable employment. But given a substantial amount of independence, of insulation from the political process to pursue those goals. So, for instance, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Defense Department, the uh, White House itself are all subject to appropriations by Congress. 
That's why they go through these periodic crises where they have to shut down, because unless Congress appropriates money for them, they can't operate. The Fed, in order to make it independent of the elected politicians, doesn't need money from Congress. They basically make their own money. They print money, they buy and sell bonds, and they use the profits from that to fund their operations, and whatever's left over, they give to the Treasury. So why would the United States, indeed, why would any democracy choose to do something like this? Well, nearly all the major capitalist democracies have decided that if you give the elected politicians too much control over interest rates and credit, you end up with people doing a little bit to make the economy grow faster today that ends up with lots of inflation in the future. So in order to avoid that, we insulate the Fed from political interference. The real argument over audit the Fed, which is a bit of a misnomer because, of course, the Fed is audited. Janet Yellen, the Fed chair, held up a copy of the Deloitte Touche audit at the congressional hearing recently. The real question is, are the proponents of audit the Fed legislation seeking to make the Fed more accountable? That is, to give Congress more information, more insight into what the Fed's doing? Or are they basically people who don't like what the Fed's doing and see audit the Fed as a lever to change the Fed? The fact that Rand Paul's father, Ron Paul, who started this campaign in recent history, wrote a book called End the Fed, suggests that holding the Fed accountable is something, not the only thing on their agenda. Well, what is it then about the dual mandate? Again, it's uh, price stability or keeping inflation low, if I get that correct, and maximum sustained employment. What about those two things do potential opponents of the Fed not like? Well, first of all, it's, it's interesting that you said keeping inflation low. That's what we used to think of as price stability. Things are so unusual now that almost all the central banks in the world are trying to get inflation up to their 2% target. But I think that um, some people think the Fed should focus only on inflation. Many other central banks have only that mandate. And at a recent Hutchins Center event, Barney Frank, the former congressman from Massachusetts, suggested that a lot of this uh, audit the Fed stuff is really an attempt to change the Fed's mandate so that it only has to look at inflation, not an unemployment. Now, Ben Bernanke, the former Fed chairman, now a colleague of ours here at Brookings, says, you know, Barney, that really wouldn't make a whole lot of difference. Uh, it might at sometimes, but for most of the recent past, the last several years, the Fed has been missing its target on both unemployment and inflation, so having only one mandate wouldn't work. But I think that's really not the central issue here. I think the central issue here is... There are a lot of people who see the Fed as a symbol of everything that's going wrong in America. Bank bailouts, uh, technocrats and PhD economists calling the shots, uh, undemocratic institutions that look down at popular sentiment, and that the antagonism towards the Fed, the antipathy towards the Fed, is a symptom of a greater lack of trust in Washington and in elites and that that's really what's driving this, rather than some question of what's the Fed mandate or what rules should they follow. What do you think is the origin then of that distrust? Is it perhaps uh, the Fed's extraordinary involvement in the, uh, the beginning of the financial crisis uh, in 2007, 2008, the collapse of Lehman Brothers, its intervention in the economy, its buying bonds, all that kind of stuff? 
Some of this has long historical roots in the United States. Uh, there's always been suspicion of centralized economic and financial power. The first and second banks of the United States were repealed. Uh, the Fed was a subject of great controversy and of conspiracy theories when it was created in 1913. There always have been suspicions that the Fed is some complicated message. Uh, the Fed is some complicated mechanism for the titans of Wall Street to rule the world. So some of this is old, but I think you put your finger on what's new. The Fed's power was revealed to everybody during the crisis. It was able to do things when the rest of the government was paralyzed. It was the one that decided that Bear Stearns should be saved, Lehman Brothers should not be saved, and AIG should be saved. And so it has become a symbol of a lot of resentment that somehow Wall Street was rescued and Main Street wasn't rescued. So I think that's what gives this current uh, uh, drive a lot of fuel, is this sense that somehow the Fed wasn't on the side of the people during this crisis. I happen to believe that's wrong, but I understand why people think that. Do you think there's any, any credence to the notion that the Fed itself has become too political, or is it more like today's politics are too concerned with what the Fed is doing? I don't think the Fed has become too political. To some extent, the Fed has always had a role to play in the political system. Alan Greenspan, the former Fed chairman, was had been in the Ford administration, was very close to Republican politicians, and was very skillful at working Congress so that it never got to this point. In a strange sense, I think Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen are less political in the sense that they have fewer friends in Congress. They're not the kind of people who go play tennis or golf with senior Republicans or Democrats. And that's made the Fed a little vulnerable. I don't think the Fed is partisan. I don't think the Fed did things during the crisis that were designed to help Barack Obama, as is sometimes uh, uh, charged. I mean, the fact that Hank Paulson and Ben Bernanke and George Bush were in charge when we hit the financial crisis, they're all Republicans. And Hank um, Paulson was the Treasury Secretary. Right, time. right. Um, so I don't think I don't think that's it. I do think that they've become more visible, and they are doing things that, in a political science textbook, you might say would be better if Congress did them. So the Fed has stepped in to do things because the political system was paralyzed, and that puts them much more in the partisan crossfire. So given our experience uh, during the financial crisis, do you think we're asking the Fed to do too much in the economy? Are, are other uh, nations and regions asking their central banks to do too much in their economies? Yes, I think we do. Um, I mean, basically, the way I look at it is that in the crisis itself, fiscal and monetary policy all around the world rushed to the rescue and did the right thing. And when the worst of the crisis passed, we got austerity too soon, and that forced the central banks to do more. So that's a clear instance of where uh, where they're doing too much because the elected officials are doing too little. In Europe now, we see that the political system is having a very hard time dealing with the tensions in the Eurozone over taxes and spending, about structural reforms. And so while they're arguing the central bank is kind of forced to come in as the only game in town that will that, that is that is functioning. Um, 
On the financial stability front, I think there's a risk that we expect too much from the central banks, but that's still really an evolution. Uh, Central banks have a very important role to play in preventing financial crises. They have an extremely important role to play in, in responding to a financial crisis. But I think we're still trying to sort out how much do we want the central banks to do and how much do we want the legislatures to do and how much do we want the bank regulators to do and how much do we want the banks themselves to do to make the system more resilient so we never have to go through this again. So let's come back to the present and the the current attempts to increase oversight of the Fed. Senator Paul has said uh, the $4.5 trillion in assets that the Fed owns uh, include more than $2 trillion that is said to be troubled. Those are his words. What's he talking about? I don't really know what he's talking about. Uh, it sounds like lunacy to me. It's true that the Fed has about $2 trillion on its books of mortgage-backed securities. These are securities issued by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are government-sponsored enterprises, which are now nationalized by the U.S. government. So it's almost as good as having U.S. treasuries. So I don't know what he has in mind. I think he's playing on a certain suspicion that people have that somehow the Fed is doing something nefarious with all its purchases and sales of bonds. And since they have over $4 trillion, that's a lot of money. In fact, you can go on the Fed website and you can see exactly every one of the securities. So I just don't think that's a serious thing. I think where there is a serious question is, what could be done to make the Fed more accountable to Congress? Or perhaps put differently, is there something that could be done that would make it better for Congress, that would improve the quality of congressional oversight? And I suspect there's some things that could be done, but I don't think they involve this audit the Fed bill or some of the other bills that are floating around. I mean, Rand Paul has some pretty big opponents for this. Of course, the Fed chair, Janet Yellen, she says that this audit the Fed bill would politicize monetary policy. She told the House uh, committee that recently. Uh, Richard Fisher, who's the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, which is my hometown, said that I can think of nothing that would do more damage to our nation's prosperity than the bill. And uh, Republican Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee said, I can't imagine anything worse for the nation or for the free world than for Congress to get involved in monetary policy. That was quite surprising. Right. And also the Democratic left in the Senate, Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts and Sherrod Brown of Ohio, have also come out against it. Uh, And they are occasionally critical of the Fed, but I think they saw this as a really just a partisan attack on the Fed, which has been deemed to be too close to the White House. Um, You know, it's not the only piece of legislation that's floating around out there. There's another one that would require the Fed to come up with some kind of rule, kind of formula for making monetary policy, and then explain to Congress frequently why it's not following the rule. And the Fed is also against this one. I think the problem the Fed has is, while they have a good argument for opposing all this legislation, they really haven't offered any alternative that would make it easier for Congress to figure out what the Fed is doing and why. And I think that's what's left them a little vulnerable. Can you hypothesize the scenario uh, under which there would be a lot of heightened oversight of what the Fed is doing, increasing congressional oversight, perhaps not in good ways? What effects would that have on Fed deliberation, Fed policymaking? Right. Well, we know that some of the people who are pushing this legislation strongly object to the Fed's program of quantitative easing, this purchases of bonds. 
this tactic they adopted really in an experiment after they pushed interest rates to zero and wanted to keep going. So you have worry that if the Fed is doing something that is an experiment, is controversial outside the Fed, has some critics inside the Fed, that if on top of that you have a bunch of GAO reviewers coming in and asking people, why are you doing this? And is this a good idea? And who said what to whom? That that could make the Fed less willing to do something like this. And we all know that if you're in a situation where you're writing memos and the memos might someday be published as a freedom of information thing or made available to Congress to the GAO, the people will then stop being honest in their memos. So I think that's one circumstance. Another is that one of these days, the Fed's going to raise interest rates. And if they raise interest rates and some congressmen want to score points and this bill passes, they could send the GAO in and say, ask them why they're raising interest rates. Why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? And that really pierces the whole insulation that we previously decided was good for the economy, keeping the Fed insulated from political pressure while still subject to the mandate set by Congress. There's uh, another line of reform that I have heard of, and it has to do with the 12 regional banks or the Federal Reserve Banks. Uh, one of them especially is the one in New York. Um, can you briefly talk about how those bank presidents are selected and what specifically people are talking about with respect to the New York Bank, if not other ones? Okay, so you put your finger on something that's really unusual about the Fed, and it's clearly an anachronism. Uh, as we discussed at a recent Hutchins Center event, the Fed was created in 1913. It screwed up during the Great Depression and was restructured in, during the New Deal. And it ended up with a seven-member board of governors in Washington, appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, and 12 regional Federal Reserve banks, each with their own private sector boards of directors. The presidents of those banks are chosen by those private sector board of directors, subject to the approval of the Fed board in Washington. And at any one time, five of them have a vote on monetary policy. It's a kind of ugly compromise. And uh, it has certain advantages. It is probably good that we have decentralization so that there's somebody in San Francisco and somebody in Chicago and someone in New York participating in the conversations. So you don't end up with the groupthink of everybody working in the same building in Washington. It's why some other central banks around the world have similar structures. But this notion that they're not quite government employees, they're not picked by the normal government process, raises lots of questions about the legitimacy of the Fed. And that's really one of the things that's come to the fore recently. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York has always been more important than the other Fed banks. It was true in the old structure before the Depression. It's true now. It has particular, it has a particularly big role in overseeing the financial system. And, duh, given how lousy oversight of the financial system was before the crisis, it's come in for a lot of criticism. And then there have been some episodes where they appear to be awfully close to the banks that have... Um, added to that criticism. And of course, the other 11 Federal Reserve banks and their presidents are always very suspicious of the New York Fed. So they're happy to join in. And frankly, some of the people who work for the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, 
indeed some of the members of the board, they're also a little suspicious of the New York Fed. So there's more than enough internal tension to fuel this this controversy. Uh, One question is whether the president of the New York Fed is such an important job that he or she ought to be appointed by the president or confirmed by the Senate. There is a bill in Congress to do that. I think most of the people at the Fed think that's a bad idea, but I think that's one that has more of a chance of passing someday than this audit the Fed thing, which is largely a stunt. Uh, Since we're talking about the structure, I just want to uh, establish for our readers real quick how the Fed chair gets picked. Can you just briefly uh, state that? Yeah, the Federal Reserve chair is appointed by the president, subject to the confirmation of Congress. While governors of the Federal Reserve are nominally named for 14-year terms, the chair and the vice chair serve four-year terms. And after that four years is up, if they want to stay on, the president has to renominate them and the Senate has to vote. And so when Ben Bernanke was up for his second term, there was a real controversy in the Senate and it looked there for a few days like he might not get reconfirmed. So today the Fed's uh, books are audited by a consulting firm, an external consulting firm. It's uh, meeting minutes are eventually published on its website. What other kinds of transparency uh, policies are in place and, and what kinds of other things do you think uh, could be put in place? They publish a statement after every meeting. The chair has a press conference four times a year. They put on their website everything they own. Um, they are audited, as you said, by accounting firms. The Government Accountability Office has jurisdiction to audit them on everything except monetary policy decisions, except interest rate deliberations. And the members of the Fed Policy Committee talk a lot, um, and they testify quite a bit, the chair in particular, on Capitol Hill. So what more could they do? That's a good question. I don't think it goes to giving out more information. I think we kind of... We have an awful lot of transparency. I think the Fed is sometimes grudging about this, and that gives it part of its problem. I think what we're lacking is some better way for Congress to have confidence that someone who knows what they're doing is looking over the Fed's shoulder and offering some constructive criticism. That is not trying to meddle in monetary policy, but helping to tell assure us all that the Fed's decisions kind of made sense at the time, and here's what we've learned. So, for instance, some other central banks bring in foreigners to evaluate their programs. Some central banks, uh, the the government funds a kind of a, a blue ribbon panel that occasionally looks at how the central bank is doing. They do this in Norway, for instance. Um, at the Hutchins Center, we've thought a lot about this and about whether maybe we should create a commission of some kind that would evaluate what the Fed's doing. And it's still something we're contemplating. But along the way, we hope by having these events where we bring in people of different views to perform some of the same function. Um, uh, I think in a recent speech, Jay Powell, a Fed governor, said that the Fed was willing to work with Congress in order to help Congress improve its oversight. But it's not clear that that was what that means in practice. Um, There's a former Fed official who thinks that it would be fine if the GAO were told twice a year you should write a report to Congress on how the Fed's doing, and you should get that report before the semiannual report of the chair 
so that you can have some better basis for asking questions. Um, so that's one alternative that the Fed doesn't seem to be willing to talk about and members of Congress don't seem interested in proposing, but that might be a middle ground where there could be somebody, an institution set up in Congress that would not meant to be meddling in monetary policy, but would be more clearly directed towards giving members of Congress better analysis. Okay. Okay. I want to ask uh, what I'm just going to call a wild hair question. I think some listeners might care about this. Uh, it's kind of out there in the, in the atmosphere, and that's the gold standard. People who really criticize the Fed are still upset that in 1971, I think it was, the United States went off the gold standard. What do you say about that? I think it's basically snake oil. The gold standard didn't work very well. It's one of the reasons we ended up with such a mess in the Great Depression. And I think people who want to bring it back are pining for some long ago ideal that isn't really what they think it was anyways. So I don't think it's a very large fraction of people. In fact, I sometimes think that the reason some of these bills come up in Congress is that members of Congress want to say they're for something that would reign in the Fed so they don't have to deal with the gold standard thing. It is true that you, you, there are advantages to having fixed currency rates and having the monetary system anchored to something can restrain inflation. But it has a lot of downsides, as we saw in the 1920s. And it's so interesting to me that the main reason that people really like the gold standards because they think it prevents the central bank from creating inflation and inflation is not even a minor problem we have right now. There's a guy uh, who writes an investment newsletter who's a bit of a gold bug, Jim Grant. And I and he's been predicting for a long time that the price of gold would keep going up because the central banks are printing all this money. I heard him speak recently and he said, my major frustration with gold is it refuses to take my advice. Excellent. Well, let's um, as we exit, let's uh, let's hear from you about your agenda in the Hutchins Center. Uh, you just had an event recently about Fed governance in the 21st century. I'll put a link to that in our show notes um, and many other things that, that you guys have been up to. But looking ahead, what are you and the Hutchins Center going to be looking at? Well, we're going to continue to see what we can do as a think tank to provide outside evaluation of what the Fed does. Our next event in June is going to look at something you hear quite a bit, that the Fed is responsible for some of the increase in inequality in the United States. And the logic goes that the Fed bought a lot of assets that pushed up the price of assets like real estate and stocks and bonds. Rich people hold more real estate, stocks and bonds than poor people. Therefore, the Fed increased the amount of inequality. And you hear this quite a bit. Well, we're going to take a hard look at that question and say, to what extent is this really true? And what would have happened if the Fed had not done all this in, in the terms of the way economists speak, the counterfactual? Because it might be that the Fed has increased inequality through this channel. But if the Fed hadn't done this, we might have had more unemployment. And it's hard to believe that would have made uh, working people better off. Um, we're going to look at some interesting questions about uh, what is what uh, what is interest rate? What are interest rates going to be when we get back to normal? That's a subject of huge controversy in the economics profession now. Uh, there's a suspicion that maybe interest rates are going to be lower than normal for a long time. Uh, 
we're thinking about ways in which the aging of the population and demographics in general affect monetary policy. It's not obvious, but there seems to be some link there that because people behave different when they're older, they save more, uh, that societies with older populations might need a different kind of monetary policy. And we're going to continue to look at ways in which monetary policy and fiscal policy interact. That is, how is it that these two uh, tools of economic policy, often thought of separately, actually uh, work sometimes with each other and sometimes against each other? Okay. So we will look to you and the Hutchins Center for all of this uh, timely research. It's all, all on our website. I want to thank you, David, for your time today. You're welcome. If you have any questions for David or any previous guests of the show, please send an email to bcp at brookings.edu, and I'll get them answered in upcoming episodes. This podcast is made possible by the production skills of Zach Colzer, the art design of Jessica Pavone, and web support from Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahan. You can listen to episodes on our website at brookings.edu bcp, on iTunes, and on Stitcher.